just a few moments, I'm going to read you some verses from Jeremiah chapter 9. As we gather today, let's think about our lives together just for a moment before we hear God's word. Uh, Every day of every week, we feel the constant pull and temptation to build our lives around our skills and our plans and our hopes and our wants. All the time, we feel the temptation to build our identity on whatever gifts that we have. And when we come to worship, we are being reminded that as important as it may be to use all of our skills and giftings to the glory of God, we come to worship. We are here because we want to declare that our really our only hope is found in God. And we actually want to surrender the totality of our lives to him so that our boast won't be in ourselves and our gifting, but our boast would be in him and in his grace. Hear this from Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in all the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I'd love to look with you this morning in the Gospel of John, chapter 3. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there. The words are also in the bulletin and should be on the screen As we're continuing to look at this gospel account together, uh, you might remember that we're going to be spending the whole year in the gospel of John. So January through May, we're going to look at John chapters 1 through 11. Then the summer, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount together. So take a little break from the gospel of John. And then in August through the end of the year, we'll be in John chapter 12 through 21. And so you might remember that a little bit, but just in case you've forgotten, we're going to be looking at John for a while. And Today, as we look at John chapter 3, I want you to notice that, there ta- there, that a little shift happens when we start John chapter 3. And we know that because if you look at the end of chapter 2, if you have a Bible, it actually says at the end of John's gospel, chapter 2, that Jesus knows everything that is in man. He doesn't need anyone to teach him anything about mankind. He knows everything about us. He knows what's going on inside of us. Now, those two verses at the end of John chapter 2 are quite helpful because they actually become the lens and the grid through which we understand everything else that's going to happen between John chapter 3 and 11. Does that make sense? So this week, we're going to look at John 3 with Nicodemus, and we're going to find out. Shocking, Jesus knows what's going on in Nicodemus' heart. And then we're going to look at chapter 4 at the woman at the well. Shocking. He knows what's going on inside of her heart. So those verses at the end of chapter 2 are really, really helpful. And I'm not going to read them, but felt like it's important to mention that to you because it really helps if you want to read ahead and think about, wow, Jesus is amazing. He is the Christ. And if I believe in him as the Christ, I will find life in his name. That's the point of these chapters, as John says in chapter 20. So listen to this, John chapter 3, I'll read the first 21 verses. This is 
the word of God. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may, be, it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is true. It brings us life. It reveals your son. Your spirit bears witness to our souls that these things are true. So we ask, Lord, that you would act on us. We know, Lord, that you can do far more in these next 30 minutes than we could ever accomplish with all of our man hours working together this week. You can do far more than what we can imagine or think. So, Lord, have your way with us. Teach us. Compel us to know more of who we are and who you are than in hope we might fulfill our callings this week. That in hope, we might face the challenges that we couldn't even anticipate now that will happen this week. So that in hope, we might strive to bring you glory this week. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, for your glory alone. Amen.
As we look at John 3 today, here's the point. Up front, I'm going to tell you what the point is so you can hopefully take this in because we have a lot to get through in these verses. There's a lot there. Here's the point. In John chapter 3, John is showing us how Jesus approaches good, we might call good people, people that are religious, people that are moralistic, people that are churchy. This is how Jesus approaches what we might consider good people. And next week, when we look at John chapter 4, we're going to look at how Jesus approaches people that are outcasts, people that are addicts, people that are broken and know their brokenness. But this week, we get to see how Jesus approaches more or less at times people like us, people that others would look and say, well, those are good people. You know, they're churchy, they have good morals, they're religious. So let's jump in. It's night, and Nicodemus comes to Jesus and begins a conversation with him. You know, I read this story many, many times growing up, and I heard the story taught many times, and I used to think that this story was about Jesus, excuse me, Nicodemus coming to Jesus and asking him for spiritual advice. And I used to think that Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because he doesn't want other people that Nicodemus, that he's associated with, to find out that he's going to talk with Jesus. But I don't think that anymore. The more that I've read and the more that I've thought and the more I've prayed, the more I realize I don't think that's going on at all. Primarily for these two reasons. When you read through the story, Nicodemus doesn't ask Jesus anything. He doesn't ask him for spiritual advice. So I couldn't think to myself, well, that's why he's there to ask spiritual advice. Well, he doesn't ask Jesus anything. And secondly, because Jesus' response is so foundational. When Nicodemus begins to interact with Jesus, Jesus goes right to the starting line. He doesn't go up here. He's not advancing whatever Nicodemus actually said to him was. He goes to the beginning which made me realize what's going on is not that Nicodemus is looking for spiritual advice at all. He's wanting to do something else. Let me show you what I think is going on. Look at the passage with me. He comes to Jesus in a very friendly, uh, a very generous, uh, a very complimentary manner. Look at verses one and two. He comes to Jesus and calls him rabbi. That is an honored position. A rabbi is a position of someone that has been trained and has authority, who is someone who is recognized by a mass number of people that they are a teacher. And guess what? Jesus has no formal degree at all. He's not educated like the rabbis were at all. And Nicodemus yet says to him in a very generous, very generous posture, Rabbi, I know that what you're doing is significant. He even says, You couldn't do these things, Jesus, unless God was with you. You see, he's coming to Jesus with a very positive, um, complimentary posture. And I don't think that it is nefarious at all. I don't think it's malicious at all. I don't think he's trying to trick Jesus at all. He comes to him in this way. Now, what's also interesting is that we find out when you read the text that Nicodemus was not only a Pharisee, but he was also part of the Sanhedrin, which means that 
Nicodemus was extremely religious. He was extremely concerned about morality. And he was incredibly involved in the churchiness of life. He was really committed to church stuff. And he comes to Jesus, not only as a Pharisee, who's educated and and well-versed in the law of God and God's word, but he also comes to him as part of the Sanhedrin. Now, what it took to be part of the Sanhedrin was this. You had to be old, which is why I think he refers to that in his conversation with Jesus. How can I be born if I'm old? How can I go back into my mom? To be part of the Sanhedrin meant that you were not only old, but you were also male. You were also very, very rich. It also meant that you were educated and actually part of and considered part of the intelligentsia of the day. And when you put all that stuff together, you are part of the cultural elite. In other words, to put it in our kind of language, you are at the top. There's nowhere else, there's nowhere up for you to go. You're educated and people know it. You're rich and people know it. You're old and experienced and people know it. You are part of the most powerful aspect of religious life and culture. Everyone knew it. So, Nicodemus isn't coming to Jesus with a lot of questions. He's got all the answers. He understands what is going on and understands how things work. He's not coming to Jesus with a bunch of problems either, obviously. He's made it. And he knows that Jesus is real. He believes that he's real. He believes that Jesus is even influential. So let's put this in business terms, in your everyday lives. Why do very successful businesses come to less significant businesses? Why does that happen? Why do do big businesses give, give small businesses even the time of day? Usually for two, one of two reasons. The big business comes to those that are less significant because they want to tell them that they're going to crush them because they're in their way. So a big business comes to a small business and says, we want to gobble you up. We want you out of our way because you are bothering us. Or a big business comes to a small business and says, you know what? We're going to make you an offer. We are interested in acquiring your services and the skills that you have. Now, Nicodemus is not meeting with Jesus because he's trying to crush Jesus. It's obvious. He has no chance at that. He's not there to crush Jesus, but it seems that he comes to Jesus because he wants to make a deal. He knows how powerful he is, and he knows that Jesus is influencing lots of people and important and seems to be sent by God. So he thinks, you know what? Maybe we can work together, Jesus. Maybe we can collaborate. You see, Nicodemus approaches Jesus in order to work an angle. Maybe we can work together, Jesus. Maybe we can do this. And Jesus responds by taking him back to the start. Jesus responds by taking him back to the foundation of everything. Now, for those of you that love theology and love to geek out on theology, what Jesus does here 
is he responds to Nicodemus with really, really deep, unequivocally clear doctrine, unequivocally clear theology. He answers Nicodemus with theology. And for those of you that think theology is not really important or it's a waste of time or I don't want to get involved in that kind of mess, then hear it this way. Jesus is after the heart. Jesus is after the heart. And so, for those of us that are theology geeks, we need to remember, doctrine is ultimately about our heart and reaching our heart. It's supposed to get out of our brain and out of textbooks and down into our heart. And for us, for us who want to think, well, I don't want to worry about doctrine too much. I just want to think about my heart and what I'm feeling or thinking. Well, if you're that mindset and thinking that you want to avoid doctrine, I want you to hear this. The only possible way to change your heart and my heart is truth, is good doctrine, is actual theology and teaching from God's word. Make sense? So Nicodemus comes to work an angle. Jesus responds by saying, we're going to the foundation. And where's that foundation? Jesus says, you must be born again. So we're gonna spend the rest of our time thinking about what does Jesus mean when he's talking about being born again? And it's both theological and it's after our heart. Look at verse seven. Nicodemus, don't marvel at this. You must be born again. You must be reborn. Jesus even says in verse three and verse five, if you're not born again, you will not even see the kingdom. And then he says, if you're not born again, you will never enter the kingdom. Now to someone who's a Pharisee and part of the Sanhedrin, when they heard that word kingdom of God, when they think of that concept, they are thinking about the reuniting of heaven and earth. They are thinking about, to use Jesus' words, the regeneration of the world. Nicodemus hears that from Jesus, and what he hears Jesus saying is, you're saying I will not be with God forever? You're saying that I won't even be able to see the regeneration of all things unless I'm born again? That was a significant foundational statement that Jesus was making. And he invites us in to think about it. And let's say this from the front in talking about being born again. Before we get into particulars, let's, let's say this from the front. This idea of being born again, being born from above, being born from God has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? I mean, when you live your life this week and work with those that you work with and live with those that you live with, this whole idea of being born again has fallen on really, really hard times. And, and we need to be honest about that and acknowledge that from the front. There are all, there's all kinds of baggage that comes from this idea of being born again. When people hear that idea that you're going to interact with and that I will interact with, people typically think that this means, oh, you're talking about super Christians. Oh, being born again, it's like a different level. It's a special class of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. 
And we ought to admit that, and we ought to anticipate that that's how people are going to hear this word. Some people also associate it with a particular political party. And we ought to, we ought to assume that and acknowledge that. Because it matters when you're trying to talk about spiritual things, how people are hearing what we are saying, even, most importantly, what Jesus is saying. So we have to acknowledge these things. When people hear this idea of being born again, they typically think that people that are born again Christians are those that are the most uptight and those that are the most moral and those that are typically self-righteous. It often means at times to people that this idea of being born again is something that's like kind of radical and extreme, some extreme view of Christianity. And another thing to keep in mind is that Nicodemus hears these words from Jesus and he takes them literally, right? Jesus says, you must be born again. He says in verse four, again, how can an old guy get back in my mom? How can I do this, Jesus? How can I get back inside the womb? It's also something that Nicodemus was supposed to know about. Look at verse 10. Jesus is poking him and pushing him a little bit. Because he's a Pharisee and part of the Sanhedrin and knows the word of God and understands a lot, is supposed to understand a lot about the word of God, Jesus even says to him in the original, you are the teacher of Israel and you do not know these things? It's not just a teacher. He's actually one of the teachers, one of the more prominent, maybe even the most prominent teacher in Israel. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you should know about this whole idea of being born again. Now let's go deeper. What is Jesus actually talking about? What is he really talking about when he says born again? Well, let's look at some phrases and verses that help us understand what he's really talking about. Look at verse eight. He's telling us that being born again is something that is out of our control. It works like the wind, Nicodemus. It works like the wind, Christ prays. Being born again is something that is out of your control. It's under the control of the Holy Spirit. In other words, to begin a relationship with God, what Jesus is saying is we aren't good enough in and of ourselves. We have to be born again, and that's something that we do not and cannot control. We are not enough to make ourselves reborn. We cannot cause ourselves to be born again. With Jesus, we need to go all the way to the beginning. We need to go back to birth. Here's something else Jesus says when he's thinking about telling us and instructing us about what it means to be born again. Look at verse 5, that you must be born of the water and the Spirit. And we have to cover this very quickly. Jesus is actually putting together language from the Old Testament here with this idea of water and the Spirit. He's saying this type of birth is a completely new foundation. It's a new identity. It's a birth in which there is transformation. So being born again and beginning our life with God is not like inoculation, it's not like immunization, it's not even like supplementing and supplementation where God's just adding something. No, he's saying that we have to be reborn. 
new identity, a brand new foundation. And what that means practically is that to be reborn means we cannot place our identity on anything other than what God has done. So we can't base our identity on our gifts, on our resources, on our money, on our careers, on our education, on our family names. We can't even develop our identity around our sexuality. Go back to the beginning, Nicodemus. Go back to the beginning. To be reborn of the water and the spirit means there's a brand new foundation, brand new identity, one that you receive, one that's based on what I have done, not who you are or your gifts or your money or your careers or your sexuality. It's based on me. So what is it? What is Jesus talking about? Here's a brief definition. When Jesus says we need to be reborn, what he's saying is that to be born again is to come alive to God. It means that in the deepest part of our being, our hearts, at the core of our being, we become alive to God. What previously was not alive to God is now, Jesus saying, alive to God. To be born again means that our soul becomes alive toward God. I hope I've said that enough to, so that you know I need to move on, but you've heard what I've said, because that matters profoundly. And Jesus pictures this for us with this idea of birth, being born again. Now, let's think about it from the baby's perspective. And if you wonder, where in the world is he going with all this? Just hang in, because I know it sounds like a lot of information. But there's a lot in these verses. Think about birth for a second, all right? Think about birth from a child's perspective, a baby's perspective. And I'm going to be very personal here. None of my children came out laughing, smiling, smoking a cigar with their feet propped up. Not one of them, not one of them. Now, I haven't seen every child that's ever been born, but my children come out giggling and laughing and just having a bang-up time. As a matter of fact, it seems that at least one of my children had to be smacked a little bit by the doctor so they'd start breathing. That's what I vaguely remember anyway. And I get it. What Jesus is saying is, from the baby's perspective, the one that is born, it is really hard to be born. It's really, really hard. It's traumatic. The baby gets squished in all kinds of different directions and smashed. The baby feels crushed. There are even times in which some of their bones are broken a little bit so they can come through the canal. And then they get handled for the first time. It's so uncomfortable and weird. And then there's all this light and then this oxygen they got to take in. And then there's like water to like clean them off and help them get clean from all the stuff that they had on them. And then there are all these strange people and all these up-close noises that are different from the things that they heard inside the womb. Being born is something that is hard. It's difficult. It's something brand new. It's something brand new. And if we're really going to understand this, we've, we've got to get rid of our 21st century grid of thinking about birth. Not because there aren't similarities, but this was written in the first century. 
There weren't C-sections and scheduling stuff. There was something much more human going on, less scientific in a way. When Jesus says you got to be born, don't just think of it from the baby's perspective either. Think about what Jesus is really saying. He is saying birth is something that happens to you. Birth is something that happens to you. The baby does, as far as I know, nothing. The baby doesn't choose to be born. The mother does everything. The mother does it all. The baby is born through the mother's labor. The baby is born through the mother's pain. She works to bring about the birth of this child. She suffers in her body for the baby. She's willing to shed blood. She bleeds for this baby. She is willing for her body to change shape, to be radically changed so that this child might come forth. And in the first century, the reality of a mother dying in childbirth is far more pervasive than today. It's far more probable statistically than today. And Jesus is saying, if you want to understand what life with me is like, you got to think about birth. And for you, Nicodemus, for me, for us, it's really traumatic. And on the other side, someone else has to put their life on the line in order for us to be born. Do you see the gospel there? Jesus is the one who says, I will bring you to life. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus and anyone who will have me, I'm the one who causes you to be born. I was willing to shed my blood. I'm willing to be disfigured. I'm willing to put my life on the line so that you could come to life. Now, just real simply, husbands, at one level, I sure hope that if you have children, you have a greater appreciation for your wife and what she has been through. Not because I've ever experienced it. I've just been thinking about it a little bit. And I've observed three. That's it. That's all I've got to work with, okay? But what our wives have gone through in giving birth is unbelievable. Unbelievable. And Jesus himself uses that to help us understand what it means to become a follower of him, of Christ. Isn't it astounding? It is to me. Jesus is saying, you are not saved by your works. You are not saved by your morality. You are not saved by your churchiness. You're not saved by any of that. You're not born because of your choice. And if you think that's crazy, look back at chapter 1 of John's gospel, around verse 12 and 13, when he actually explicitly says, who were born not of the flesh, not of will, and not of your blood. Meaning, we are born of God. We could never choose to make ourselves born. We weren't born again because of our family, our blood. And we're not born again because of our life, our flesh, our, the choices that we make, our morality. That's not how it works. Jesus is saying to Nicodemus and he's saying to us, you can't make yourself a Christian. Take that in. Please take that in. 
You can't make yourself a Christian. Let that sit and weigh that. Think about how profound that is. Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you can't make yourself a Christian. New life is 100% because of someone else. And he's saying, Nicodemus, I'm your spiritual mother. I'm the one that put my life on the line for you. Now, if you are immediately thinking, well, I guess that this, I guess this, that this denies free will, I guess when I hear this, this denies free will. Well, let me answer that quickly and not comprehensively, okay? If you're hearing this and thinking, well, I guess that denies free will, no, it doesn't. Now, I'll answer this quickly, and I'm happy to talk with you about this as much as you would like, as far as I can, because there's lots of mystery here. And I'll do it quickly by way of illustration. Borrowed this from somebody and southernized it. If you have a lion and you put a, a big slab of meat in front of that lion or a big tub of grits, that lion is going to choose the meat every single time. That lion will never, ever choose grits, which means more for us. But nevertheless, that lion will never choose the grits. There is no infringement on his will. The lion always chooses what it wants, always. We always choose what we want. You see, it's not that our want to is broken, it's what informs our want to that is broken. We only want self and what is wrong, and we have to have a heart change in order for us to choose differently. That's what Jesus is getting at. You need a heart change because once your heart is changed, that activates your want to. And your want to wants new things that it didn't used to want to. But now it does. And Jesus says this all starts with the heart. We need a brand new heart. Why do you think Nicodemus walks away? You read this story, you think, well, he, he leaves. It seems, it seems like it's somewhat unresolved. Why does Nicodemus walk away? And why when you read throughout the gospel accounts that good people, people that are really religious, people that are really churchy, people that have incredibly high moral standards, why do they get offended? And that hasn't changed. Why do people get offended at this? Why do people hear this from Jesus and think, oh man, that, I'm losing all hope. By the way, there's a lot more to Nicodemus than we can't cover this morning, but if you're interested in, in reading, check out chapter 7 and verse roughly 50 and following, and check out chapter 19, verses 38 and following, and what you'll find out is that Nicodemus was radically changed. By the middle of John's gospel, almost the, first third, the end of the first third of John's gospel, he's defending Jesus. And after Jesus dies, Nicodemus is there, taking down his body publicly. Amazing. No doubt Nicodemus was changed. But back to our question, why, why do you think Nicodemus walks away here? And, and why do people hear this and think, yeah, I don't like this at all. 
this is offensive. I, I don't have it. You're taking away my hope if you're saying that, that I can't make myself a Christian, that I can't choose to be born. Good people always think that they can make themselves Christians. Moralistic, churchy, religious people always think that they can make themselves Christians. And Jesus is coming to change that. As a matter of fact, most good people think that coming to Jesus is more like a spiritual acquisition and merger. I'm just going to take on what Jesus has and add that to what I got. And therefore, life with God is about making deals with him. And I heard this last week, some guy you might have heard of named Tom Brady, Super Bowl last week, said something along the lines of, yeah, I prayed, and I just said, God, just one more, and I'll never ask you for anything else, something like that. You might chuckle, but the truth is, his view of and perception of life with God is, let's make a deal. I do this, you do that. How about I finally get to the point of making my acquisition and merger with you? And at the end of the day, when you have that kind of view of working with God, at the end of the day, let me tell you, Nicodemus and all of us that are religious people and all of us that are moralistic people and churchy kind of people, at the end of the day, this is what we have. We have everything. We have everything. We have a strong sense of right and wrong. We have all kinds of discipline and want to in life, and we're interested in being a disciplined kind of people. We even have a strong sense of work and responsibility, and we even do right activities like praying and gathering together and reading the Word of God. We have everything, but what we don't have is Jesus. That's Nicodemus. That's us by nature. We feel like we have everything, and we do have everything, except Jesus, the only one that actually matters. Because of that, we actually end up having nothing. You see, deep down, sin is so deep within us, deep, deep down, we trust ourselves Deep down, and Jesus is stripping all of that away from Nicodemus, and he's stripping all of that away from us. And so when we ask questions like this, which I have asked them, I've asked these questions myself, when we ask questions like, well, if this is true, then why in the world do I need to pray? If this is true, why in the world do I need to tell others about Jesus? If this is true, why, why do I need to obey? I have asked those questions. And what I've realized is that those questions are not so much about God. Those questions are more about what they reveal of my heart and the heart that I have of control. If you've been taught your whole life that you are in ultimate control, and this message of grace offends you, 
you are probably hearing exactly what Jesus is saying. And I want you to know there's grace, and his grace is sufficient to cover everything, everything. And if you're here this morning, and this is super familiar to you, and you've been taught this for a while, and it doesn't lead you to obey, and it doesn't lead you to prioritize the church, and if it doesn't lead you to reach people and love people, but it makes you think and act like you're a next level Christian, like you're some kind of super Christian who really, really knows what the Bible is talking about, then you might not know what Jesus is talking about here. But I want you to know there is empowering grace in Christ to lead you to obey and to prioritize the church and love people and pursue people. And there's also humbling grace to bring us to a regular sense, a real sense, an abiding sense of his power and what he has done. So we'll end with this. How do I know if the new birth is at work? How in the world do I know if the new birth is at work? Well, Jesus says the same thing to us that he says to Nicodemus. Believe. He says to him, do you believe? You see, we've all heard John 3.16 before, right? For God so loved the world that he gave, that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him would not perish, but have life everlasting, everlasting life, life eternal. See, belief always follows the new birth. So if you believe because God is working in your life and he's changed you, What's so interesting to me is just a few verses before verse 16, the one that we are all, we've all heard over and over our whole lives. Jesus picks out this little story from the book of Numbers. It's a story of God has brought his people out of Egypt and he's leading them into the promised land. And they're complaining and whining because they want to go back and think life in Egypt is actually better than where we are now. And all these snakes are sent and they enter the camp of God's people and they start biting and they're poisonous snakes. And God's people, some of them are dying and they're all really, really sick. And Moses gets this bronze serpent and puts it up on a pole and he raises it up. And you know what happens? Whoever looks to that is healed. Isn't that amazing? Look at what Jesus says in verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who is pictured in that story way back in Numbers. And you know why I think Jesus picked that story? You know, it's not as though God said, well, hey, if you can crawl up to the pole, you're going to be healed. He doesn't say just work up enough energy, drag yourself, get there somehow, whatever effort you have, put all your effort into it and get to the pole. No. He says, look. And the reason why he says this, I think, to good people that are religious and moral and churchy is because actually we're always looking to ourselves. 
And we're always working angles and manipulating things because we want to stay in control. And we have a really hard time looking to anyone else, anything else, for help, assistance, need. We want to do it all ourselves. And Jesus says believing is looking away from yourself and looking to me. How does Jesus approach good people? He says to us, look at me for your life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were lifted up even on a cross that we might realize that our lives are bankrupt and empty apart from you. And Jesus, your message of grace is powerful and it strips away, it strips away our desire to control. So we ask that you would help us and remind us again and again that it's because of your death that we're born. It's because of your blood and willingness to put your life on the line that we're born. And may we live our lives with an ever-increasing confidence that you are our literal, comprehensive, total Savior. And teach us to look to you all the time. In your name we pray, amen. But as you leave here and go to work this week and go to your homes, go to live in your neighborhoods, to work out your callings, uh, know that what Jesus has done matters for your every second. It matters every day of our lives. Go here, go this week knowing that his blessing is upon you. That what he has done in bringing you to life, he will bring to its fullest expression with the world to come. So hear this blessing and live by it this week. The Lord your God is going to bless you and he is also going to keep you. This week, no matter what you're doing, his smile is upon you, and he's going to be gracious to you. And in the age to come, forever and ever, his presence will be with you, and he will make you whole. He will bring shalom, all because our Savior is alive. Amen. Go in peace.